Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Many of you will recognize my next guest from Season 4 of Undercover Boss as the president of Moe's Southwest Grill. But today, he's the CEO of Global Franchise Group, which owns some of America's favorite brands like Great American Cookies, Marble Slab Creamery, and Round Table Pizza. With more than 35 years leading the food and hospitality industry, Paul D'Amico is sharing his secrets to success. This is Motivational Mondays. I'm your host, Max Erzak, and joining us from Atlanta, Georgia, is Paul D'Amico. Good morning. Hi. (laughs) Can you share a little bit about your story around how you first got started in the food industry? I was very intimately involved in my high school career um, in the restaurant space. My father was the maitre d' of a, of a local catering establishment. And I was, I was involved in that every weekend, catering weddings. Uh, I started, I think, in, in 10th grade uh, as, as a dishwasher and worked my way up to prep cook. And so I spent every summer and most of the year um, in the kitchen. It's, it's really how I became uh, enamored with the, with the back of the house of restaurants and, and ultimately um, attended Johnson & Wales University where I got my culinary degree and my business degree. You took over as the CEO of the Global Franchise Group in April 2020, right at the start of the pandemic when they were the most unknowns. I'm curious about why you decided to jump into the deep end and take on this challenge. And how do you handle the unknown? It was an interesting time uh, for sure. I had I, At that time, I was based in Chicago uh, as the CEO of NAFNAF Middle Eastern Grill. Uh, and I, as the pad, as the pandemic started to get serious, it became evident that we were going to have to cl- completely close NAFNAF Middle Eastern Grill. And so I spent, um, while I was being recruited to move to Atlanta, I had spent about a month completely closing down a 38 unit restaurant chain in, in Chicago and uh, throughout the the East Coast and, and Midwest, um, and so that that was probably the most difficult uh, time in my career to have to lay off 800 employees and mothball a, a concept entirely. It it just so happened that I was being recruited at that time for an opportunity in Atlanta, and so I decided to pursue that opportunity. And as I stepped out of Chicago and stepped into Atlanta. I was faced with a, a much larger organization, 1,500 locations in 13 countries across um, five brands, and started to immediately close 800 locations uh, that, that we had in malls uh, in North America. And so that, that made closing NAFNAF seem like nothing at all. And so here I am now as the CEO of this company that is just looking for leadership and how we are going to um, emerge once this thing is over. And we always had our eye on, on, on the prize, which was we're going to get through the pandemic and we're going to reopen. A lot of aspiring leaders are enamored by the thought of running a company and being at the top. 
but many are unaware of the mental stress that comes with that title. Can you talk to us about the emotional impact of shutting down half of your franchise locations, especially knowing that each one of those franchisees has a family and livelihood that you would be impacting with that decision? Yeah, the level of stress was something that I had never felt, both while in Chicago and stepping into Atlanta. Um, People were worried about their health. They were worried about their business. uh, They were worried about their families. And beyond those three things, everything becomes a distant fourth. But all three of those were in in crisis mode, I would say. And so um, I I deal with my stress um, by, by working out. And so... I was working out twice a day um, to try to relieve the stress that I had due to all of these mitigating circumstances. And so I would say that um, sleep was rare. Um, I would say that I broke out in hives for four months because I couldn't control what was happening uh, around me. And so it it was a very difficult time stepping out and stepping into the same thing on a much bigger scale. How do you motivate your employees? How do you get them to perform at their peak? Uh, we start by recruiting the right people. Um, and, and certainly one of the things that the pandemic did for us was help us downsize and right-size the organization, right? You, heard, you hear that a lot throughout the industry, and it's not just the restaurant industry. You hear that. You hear that across the board. And so every organization has in it um, some underperformers. Um, what this pandemic allowed us to do was really shed the underperformers. Um, and so that is something that we we did at the same time we right-sized the organization. We cut out over $2 million of overhead um, and, and and really prepared the, the organization to be able to move for a fairly large organization to, to start to behave more like a jet ski and less like a cruise ship, right? Because if the pandemic, we were still in the pandemic and we didn't know if it was going to go just for another 30 days or another 12 months, or was it a two-year gig? Uh, and so we, we prepared mentally and structurally for reaction times to be way quicker than they have been in the past. And I think that's led to our success in, in re-emerging uh, a year later with um, basically 100% of the operations. For a lot of great leaders, there seems to be a single moment that changed the type of leader they would become. Can you share the story of how your father's boss helped your family all those years ago and how that impacted your leadership style? It's just something that is so um, vivid in my memory. I'm one of six children, um, and I'm, I'm the third. Uh, and, to, and, my, and my brother um, that was affected um, and had his liver um, replaced, had a liver transplant. I was 10 years older than him at that time. And so to watch uh, my parents, how they reacted, my brother was 10, I was 20, so I was in college. I wasn't home for all of the drama. But, but when, we, when we heard that he was you know, on the list, had a pager, um, and when that pager went off, you had, I think, six hours to get onto the operating uh, room table. And that was uh, a five-hour drive from, from Long Island to Pittsburgh, which was the only place that was doing liver transplants at the time. And so uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a harrowing time for the family. I, you know, you, you, I don't know how my brother slept knowing that he's got a pager on and when it goes off, it's happening. Um, and we worked, we worked, the family worked on how we were going to get my brother there in time. And so, um, when that happened, my father's company was, my father worked for Grumman Aerospace as his major career, um, for 40 years. 
And when that when that call came, that was that was like a miracle. We're going to send the jet. You're going to get on the jet, and 40 minutes later, you're going to be landing in Pittsburgh. Fascinating stuff for for what was now um, 30 years ago. It's amazing. And how did that impact your leadership style, seeing that your father's boss went out of his way to provide that jet and take care of his employees like that? I've, I've always, I've always felt, you know, since then that I call it servant leadership, right? I, no, no matter whether, whether I've been the president or the CEO, servant leadership is, is part of my DNA as a leader. So when I start to see, um, when I started to see how that happened with my father, this is, this is something that is above and beyond, right? You don't ask for it. It's just given and someone's there to help you. And that's, that's the way I, I run my day-to-day now in the companies that, that I have run. It, it, it is, I, think it's, I sometimes think it's rare to see CEOs that will deliver the coffee to the boardroom for the team. And when the meeting's over, I clear the table and take out the trash. And sometimes people look at me like, you don't have to do that. I know I don't have to do that, but that's who I am, right? That's who I am. Can you explain for our listeners what servant leadership actually is? For me, it's not just, it's not just um, leading the, the way to do it. It's, it's behaving the way to do it. And it's not just um, – you don't just do it when it's right for you, and you don't just do it when it's managing up through the board – or through the ownership of the company. It is, it is horizontal. It is vertical down to the lowest hourly employee. So I'm the one that will go into a restaurant and I will ignore the, the GM. I will ignore the di- director of operations and I will go right to the bartender or the dishwasher first thing and ask them how their day is doing, shake their hand, thank them. And then there's, there's always time to get to the leadership team. So that's for me, servant leadership. When you were the president of Moe's Southwest Grill, you had the chance to connect with your employees in a pretty unique way by disguising yourself and going on the show, Undercover Boss. What did you learn from this experience? A number one thing that I've learned is that the, the, the people that are involved in running the restaurants on a day-to-day basis are real people, and they have real challenges, lots of them. Everybody has challenges in their life, right? They have economic issues. They have family issues. They have personal issues. Uh, and some of these issues really started to bubble up. And that's, that's basically on the show how they find the, the, what they call the contributors, the employees that engage with me on the show. And so people should get to know their employees at every level, I think at a fairly granular level, uh, because it makes – it makes decision making that much easier when you when you when you when you set a strategy and you want things taken care of and things don't happen the way you want. There's always a reason, and if you know what's happening uh, in the ranks, it's easier to fix those decisions and course correct on them. As a leader at the very top, how do you close that empathy gap between yourself and the people at the very bottom of your organization? You hope uh, you hope uh, that your that your senior leadership team that is overseeing every aspect of the business and their teams understand that empathy is an important factor in what we do. If we really care about people, our tagline here, which, which really is more than a tagline at GFG is I love this place. And people, people wear that on their sleeve. That's, 
that's on pillows in people's offices and on T-shirts and banners. And, and it's not just something we do for, a, for an annual conference. It's something that truly lives. And so when you see an email from, a, from an area manager on the West Coast that signed a deal, he goes, I love this place. We know what that means. It's not just, it's not just uh, something an individual said. It's said throughout the organization. How can more leaders put themselves in their employees' shoes? As, as students start to emerge um, and think about finishing their, their academic career and entering the workforce, I would hope that every student has some form of a mentor that, that will help guide them in making the right decisions and becoming more people-focused, becoming maybe um, servant leaders in whatever field they are. Um, I've had I've had many mentors that were also bosses throughout my career, um, and it's 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 why and who I am today. I believe that. What's your advice for finding a mentor? Uh, I would start with family members that ha- that are in a field have been somewhat successful in that field. Um, because this is because that will lead to other people that they will put you in touch with that they that they truly respect in the industry. It's it's hard to have to actually have a mentor that is a family member because in my eyes, uh, mentors are the people that you can ask the dumbest question to and you'll just get a straight answer. Um, and that re- that rarely will happen with a family member, right? So you've you've got to start somewhere. So so in college. Uh, or when you're in your higher education, it could become a professor. It could become someone in the in the in the non-academic area of of human resources. It could be somebody associated with the college that you've built a relationship with, and you can take that relationship with you when you leave. And then, as you start your career, there are lots of opportunities for mentors that you will meet along the way, and you will say, "I think you will be a great mentor." Ideas can come from anywhere in the organization. Like we heard on Undercover Boss with Angelisa, who shared a really cool idea for a dessert burrito. As a leader, how do you build a culture where people can feel comfortable sharing their ideas and actually feel like they're being heard? Part of it is really your reaction to whatever those ideas are from from employees, from franchisees, or from people within your organization. If, if, If the organization looks at you, the leader of the company, and sees a wall, you will never have any kind of innovation coming your way from those individuals. If you are open-minded and you have a personality that fosters that kind of outside-the-box creative thinking, lots of ideas will come to you. Some of them are not going to work within the organization. Angelisa had a fantastic idea, but it just wasn't an idea that could work within the Moe's Southwest Grill brand. Why? Moe's is known for not having any freezers in the restaurant. All of our restaurants, all our product was fresh there. So we never had frozen product. It's kind of tough to have an ice cream in a restaurant without a freezer. I remember reading something about you that I really admired. You said, I want to be remembered as the person who provided opportunity and helped a lot of people reach their personal goals. To me, this is the difference between a boss and a leader. Why is personal development of others at the heart of your leadership style? I care about people. Uh, And when you find yourself as a servant leader in a position of authority, decision-making, and career opportunities, 
you have the ability to to influence the organization and the person you're trying to help. Uh, that you don't always get that opportunity when you're when when you're in middle management, right? But there's but when I can take individuals and put them in roles that I think they'd be great at, and watch them succeed, that's that for me is success. That's success as a leader. Can you share one mistake you've made in your career that actually turned out to be a great learning opportunity, making you a better leader in the process? I've not made any mistakes in my 35 years. <laughs> <laughs> I think making mistakes is is part of growth, right? And I think it's it's like the culture of the company. Um, if there's a culture of fear of making a mistake, that that is a stagnated organization. Uh, if the culture is, it's okay to make mistakes, then then that's a, then it's a, the the what a staff meeting looks like, and what team building exercises and what grand openings look like are two very different things. And when you have an environment where where making a mistake is okay, you see everybody's shoulders drop a little bit. You see a little more smile on their face, and it's there's there's no there's no death and destruction around making a mistake. Um, I've made mistakes in the past with with hires. Uh, I've hired hundreds of people in my career, and I, I would say that there's a couple that I probably made mistakes on, um, and made decisions to course correct and, and wish those people well. Many of our listeners will soon be graduating from college and applying to jobs. When you're looking for new people to join your team, how would you describe your ideal candidate? Uh, the first thing I look for is personality. Um, are, do they have a high energy level is probably key for me. Um, do they smile a lot is key for me. Um, we'll, we'll get to the academics and how they performed in school um, at, a, at a later date. But I'm, I'm really looking for can they engage someone in a simple conversation um, or are they just wound tighter than a drum and don't even want to be there. Um, so for, for me – it's about the personality first, um, the experience and or the education second. That's so interesting. I've, I've asked that question a couple of times and a lot of the responses do circle around personality first rather than the actual tangible skills that they're bringing to the role. I'm curious why you place personality above technical expertise. Because I think for students um, that are that are leaving academia and entering the workforce, there's very everybody tries to get that resume to look something like it's not right. There's, if you've been in school, if you went from high school to four years or six years of college, and now you're entering the workforce, I don't expect you to have a lot of experience because you have none. There might be social groups, there might be civic groups. There's always a lots of volunteering. At the end of the day, I see it as our role. If we're going to bring in entry-level people directly out of school, uh, for me, we'll teach you everything you need to know, but you have to be willing to learn and you have to have a personality that fits with the culture of the company. You've worked for quite a few big name brands like Marriott, Moe's, and made a huge impact at each of them. What do you attribute your success to? What's your approach for excelling at what you do? I, I look back to my early days at Marriott. And I was always, I was always viewed and told um, that I was a hard worker. I think I learned that, that hard work um, truly while working the dish machine in restaurants, right? 
Nobody ever wanted to clean. Back then, there were more dirty ashtrays than there were dirty dishes because that's everybody smoked. And I, you know, I was the one who wasn't, you know, grossed out or afraid to clean. I had the cleanest ashtrays in the restaurant. Um, and so I always made sure that my dish machine was as clean as the, as the clean dishes coming out the other side. And so I was, I was recognized for the last, you know, the first guy in, last guy out, always had the right uniform on. No one ever had to tell me, um, partly because I had a parent that I worked with and coached me in private when we were back at home about getting there early, staying late, looking the right part, making sure you had your name taken on all those little things as a, as a, as you're starting to think about what a career is. So, um, it's, it's an important thing to, to have a work ethic, um, that really makes you shine in whatever environment you've chose to be in. It sounds like it's even more than hard work. It's actually taking pride in the work that you do. Sure. Absolutely. And I've always taken pride in everything that I do. Nothing for me, nothing is half-assed personally, professionally. What is one final thought you want our audience to walk away with? What is some actionable advice? I think as I think about um, students uh, entering the workforce, when I, when I left school, I, I think because of the curriculum that I chose, culinary arts and hospitality, my windows were fairly narrow. I was going into the hospitality industry. If I was emerging from, from academia today with a degree in finance, I could work anywhere in any industry. Um, and so I think it's so important that you, you choose an industry that you tr- have a passion for, uh, and you could see yourself there for 40 years. I know that's a difficult thing today, uh, especially with millennials who want to change jobs, change apartments every 18 months. I, I understand that I have three adult daughters and I'm watching this happen. Um, but, but you've got to go somewhere that you love because if I, because if I ever bumped into you and I'd say, how are things at the company? And you don't immediately spring into action with a smile and say, it is the best decision I have ever made. And I love what I do every day. Then you've made the wrong decision. And so you've really got to study the industry, not so much your uh, degree. And it's, it's where you apply that degree that's going to make you happy. It's not that degree. Nobody's happy about any degree they ever had. Where are you going to use it? Uh, and are you going to love where you've made the decision? to go use it. And if you can go back and do it all over again, what would you change? Uh, I've, I've just made decisions in my career that I, when opportunities present themselves to me, um, in hindsight, probably should have stayed where I was a little more, a little longer. Um, Marriott's probably my, biggest mistake. I was there 14 years, loved every minute of it, but got bit by an entrepreneurial bug. I, I was, you know, I was tired of the blue blazer and the red tie and the wingtips. And I just, I needed to go do something a little more hands-on. And I, I made that decision. And then three months later, uh, Marriott went public. And so I, you know, I, I left some money on the table, <laughs> but, uh, but I was young and inexperienced at that time in those matters. I'm a little more cautious now. That's actually a, a very interesting take because it, it's so different from what we usually hear. People typically encourage others to go into entrepreneurship and, and follow that bug. 
but you almost wish you stayed a little bit longer on the corporate side. Only for financial reasons. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled because I would not be where I am today if I did not chase that, that bug and really get in the weeds and get dirty and get my hands dirty and risk, uh, risk, um, everything. I had the most stable career at Marriott, uh, that anybody could ever have. And I had a wife and three young daughters and I came home one day and said, we're wrapping it up. We're going to be moving to Southern California. Um, and we're going to, and we're going to start a restaurant company from the ground up. And my wife thought I had lost my mind. But listen, uh, it, it turns out that, that those seven years in Southern California were the best seven years of our life. And we raised our kids out there. So everything happens for a reason. And I think that's important to remember. It all worked out. Paul, I want to thank you for showing up every day and putting empathy at the heart of what you do. You're a true role model to all young men and women aspiring to become great leaders. Max, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. And a huge thank you to everyone listening today. We'll see you next week on Motivational Mondays.